Okay, welcome back to another recording of Bush School Uncorked. I'm your host, Justin Bullock. My co-host, Greg Galls, is here, thankfully, with me this week. How are you, Greg? I'm good, sitting outside on the patio in my rocking chair. So, uh, <laughs> that, yeah, I got that going for me. <laughs> yeah, you stayed outside this week. I, uh, I dropped the ball and moved back inside. It's kind of hot today. It was getting up to like 90 It's a little hot. It's 90 degrees here in the Brazos Valley. Let's hope that kills the coronavirus. <laughs> Let's hope so. Solid <laughs> plan. Solid plan. <laughs> we also have with us two guests who've been with us on a previous uh, podcast before, but not in the live Zoom format, format. Professors Ann Bowman and Robert Greer. Thanks for being with us tonight. Thanks for having us. Yeah, definitely. I wish we were gathering in person or we could have a glass of wine together and hang out around a table. How pleasant would that be? Much more pleasant than what we've got now. <laughs> someday, Justin. Okay, yeah, so I'm pretty someday. I'm pretty, yeah, one day. Yeah, I'm pretty tired of these four walls, so. Yeah, yeah. I thought I was going to really enjoy spending a lot of my time on Zoom, but uh, it became a lot of time very quickly. No, I, 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 if I don't see another Zoom box, another, <laughs> another box of like the Hollywood Squares or the Brady Bunch, I know I'm dating myself. I'd be perfectly fine. All right. We're going to come back to that Brady Bunch reference at some point, Greg. But um, let's, uh, let's move on forward. This is our last uh, of the Close Quarters recordings for the semester. So thanks to those of you that have come out with us and hung out and asked questions and kind of been a part of the Live show is kind of nice to move from not being able to do them at all to at least being able to do them virtually and hang out with you all here. So um, thanks for that. We're going to take a little bit of a break after this. Greg and I were just talking before we started recording. Our plan is to record maybe one episode a month over the summer, kind of check in with you. Um, but if we get any crazy ideas along the way, we might also uh, send out some notifications through our regular means and let you know that we'll be doing a recording again. So I think that sounds like a good plan for the summer. What do you think, Greg? All good. I don't think I'm going to be doing a huge amount of traveling. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think you should be doing any, any traveling, Greg. Stay away from those airplanes. All right, so one of the things that we haven't, we talked a little bit about a couple weeks ago, but that we really wanted to dive into um, with some guests is what are, gonna, what are going to be the consequences for other levels of government, not just the federal government that's in the news a lot, but also state and local governments. But before we do that, I'd like to give our guests, uh, even though they've been with us a couple of times before, an opportunity to uh, tell us a little bit about them, a little bit about their intellectual history and uh, what brings them to this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Dr. Ann Bowman, if you would go first, that would be wonderful. Okay. Uh, thank you, Justin. I'm delighted to be here, and I guess I would say that uh, uh, my interest is in U.S. state and local governments. That's the research I do and the courses I teach typically involve that. I've been particularly interested uh, with the coronavirus and its impact on state and local governments. So I think, um, I think we're in for an interesting conversation this evening. Great. Well, I could not think of... Uh one of two any better people to be having this discussion with. One was uh, 
you, of course, and uh, my friend here, Rob Greer, Professor Dr. Rob Greer. Um, thanks for being with me, buddy. Uh, give us a little bit of your background, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So um, my focus, uh, like, like Dr. Bowman's, is on state and local governments, but my particular bend is on financial management, uh, budgeting, and particularly uh, debt management. Um, and so uh, I do a lot on sort of local government strategies for managing debt, uh, and a lot on specialized forms of local government, special districts, uh, the debt that they carry, their management strategies, uh, how they finance infrastructure and things like that. Um, like Dr. Robin, I also have been following this pretty closely. I have an interest on the impact that COVID-19 is going to have on local governments um, and specialized governments. And I've been working on a, a, a short piece that we hope to get out pretty soon on that. So happy to talk more about that uh, later as we go. Wonderful. Well, I have a question for you, and it's from the president, uh, writ large to all of us, uh, on Monday on Twitter. And I think it sets the, at least, question that's at the forefront of what's being talked about in the policy world. And I want to know kind of how you think about these questions. You don't have to respond directly, but just kind of how, what is, how might we think about the the challenges facing state and local governments and as, as this is our question is going to be posed. So here it is. Why should the people and taxpayers of America be bailing out poorly run states like Illinois, as an example, and cities, in all cases Democrat run and managed, when most of the other states are not looking for bailout help? I am open to discussing anything but just asking. So we have two of the smartest people I know about uh, financing and how uh, local and state governments work. So what's going on and how should we be thinking about how this is impacting state and local governments and should the federal government be helping them? And well, either of you can go first. <laughs> yeah, this, this is a, that's a difficult, um, a difficult place to start in so many ways because the statement is so outrageous on its face that it's difficult to, um, to respond without much, without emotion, quite honestly, uh, to respond uh, in a in a way that um, just just uh, really reflects the fact that uh, um, at the first, at the outset, from the first, folks look oftentimes to the national government in times of crisis. So I think we could assume we're in a time of crisis. We oftentimes look to oh leadership uh, at the national level, and we're certainly not getting it in this case or the leadership we're getting is uh, so flawed that, um, uh, that, it's, that it's almost almost laughable. So the statement is you know, outrageous that it is simply blue state governors who are seeking uh, so-called air quotes bailouts, uh, when in fact um, uh, state and local governments are the heartbeat of, of uh, what goes on in, in, uh, in, in this country and uh, working with the national government it's, um, it, it, it only makes sense. So the, so the national government has a better fiscal position to work from. Um, it, can, um, it, it can certainly borrow money at, uh, at very, very, very low interest rates. Uh, it can certainly take on debt. And so as a consequence, it is much better positioned to help out state and local governments in this time of crisis, regardless of the political uh, partisanship of a state's government. Uh, that's, that's a great start. Thanks, Ann. Rob, you look like you have something to say. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I got a lot of things to say, um, <laughs> but but like Anne, right? I think I would start by just rejecting the the fundamental premise of the mm -hmm. statement or question, right? It is not just uh, blue states that are asking for for quote unquote handouts, um, and uh, and if we look at sort of the the states that are net recipients of, of federal dollars, these are not typically blue states. Um, if you look at the entire package of federal aid that goes out uh, and you include in that unemployment payments and, uh, and um, Medicaid payments, SNAP payments, right? These are going to a lot of red states, right? These are not, this is not a red state, blue state type of, of, of issue where only Republican run states uh, or only Democratic run states are asking for handouts. That's, that's just, it's just not true, right? That the reject the fundamental premise. But even if you took the premise at face value, right? Why you should bail out states, uh, there's, there's just a long list of, of reasons for that, right? And we can get into to all of them, but I'll start with, with something that Ann touched on, which is, right, this is, if you talk about what people need to survive, Right, not even talking about re, you know, kickstarting the economy or anything like just just shelter in place and survive. They need running water. They need electricity. They need to be able to get to and from work if they're essential workers. Right, that's that's transportation. That's water. That's utilities. These are these are local government services. Um, and so if you force local government services to go belly up uh, financially and they can't provide core services, uh, you you can't have uh, you know safety at, at any level, right? And then if you do, if you go to what the president actually wants, which is sort of uh, economic recovery, kickstarting the economy, um, you have to start with not laying off all your public employees, <laughs> which is a huge uh, fraction of the total workforce. And so if you're talking about bankrupting states, like uh, I can't, you know, if we want to get into to, uh, Mitch McConnell's statements there, if you talk about bankrupting states, if you talk about letting local governments sort of fight this on their own without any, any uh, federal help, then they're going to be layoffs, right? The first thing you do in cutback management is freeze your hiring, get rid of all your temporary employees, and then start looking at furloughing and, and uh, putting people out of work, uh, which is the exact opposite of what I think the president would actually want us to do. Okay. All right. So since I started you off with a little bit of a, a charged question there, uh, I'll be fairly because it, it did come from, uh, from the president. Let's dive into this a little bit more. So, you know, we've been talking mostly about the importance of, um, of staying at home as we were trying to flatten the curve. Uh, we were worried about overburdening uh, hospitals, you know, depending on exactly what the numbers look like, we have, um, sort of flatten the curve or flattening the curve in lots of states, not everywhere. Some states are uh, starting to open up some more businesses. Um, and so we've been kind of talking a lot about this at the federal level, but why do states need to be quote unquote bailed out or why do states need to uh, receive handout? What's, what's coming? I mean, Rob, you, you alluded to this a little bit, but paint us a little bit broader picture of what kind of the best guesses are right now of the do nothing path or the let states fend for themselves path. What does that, that look like? Um, so, so it depends somewhat on the state, right? Uh, how hard they've been hit. And then also what their revenue structure looks like, right? So we've got, 
we've got two sides of this. We've got um, increased costs to state and local governments, right? They have to spend more um, to, to, to provide core public services, um, to make sure there's not disruptions, right? Water systems and power systems are guaranteeing there's not gonna be any shutoffs during, during uh, you know, stay at home orders, things like that. Um, you know, hospitals obviously need, need more support. Um, and so government, local governments have to spend more. That's one side, right? And then on the other side, uh, they're receiving less in, in revenue, in, in tax revenue, right? And if you are a state that relies particularly heavily on sales tax, like the state of Texas, for example, um, and nobody's out there shopping and, and buying things, you're collecting uh, a lot less in, in revenue. And then on, on the flip side, for states that rely a lot more on the income tax, more people out of work, um, less, less going into that system. And so they're collecting less in revenue also. So you, you've got declining revenues, you've got increasing costs, um, and that, that's sort of the, the only math you need to understand to understand <laughs> budget deficits. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. yeah I think I was just looking at something the Center of Budget and Policy Priorities had done. It said it should be a, something like a $500 billion shortfall. Um, if there isn't, if there isn't, as a consequence of this, and there, if, and if there is no additional federal aid through um, fiscal 2022, and that there seems to be a misperception, at least on the part of some folks at the, at the federal level, about how flush states are with cash. Um, I mean, states do have rainy day funds, budget stabilization funds that they can access, but even if they were to drain those funds, um, the the uh, Center for Budget and Policy Priorities uh, estimated a $360 billion gap. So the point is, um, states, while they, while they did end the last fiscal year with, uh, with, um, with money in the bank, that is true, um, the demands that are gonna be made on them and the revenue shortfalls that are going to exist as a consequence of, of, of the coronavirus, they're not gonna be in any shape to, um, uh, uh, to, to, to flourish without to survive maybe uh, without federal help. And I mean, I have to just say something about Mitch McConnell and that bankruptcy notion. Um, I mean, it was hilarious. It was, well, I don't know what it was. Um, it did make me think <laughs> of the president because he, well, it did make me think of the president because he does have some experience with bankruptcy. Um, but but that's, that's, states don't go bankrupt. That's not, how, that's not how our system works. Even though federalism is a relatively federal, uh, flexible system, uh, bankruptcy for the states is, uh, is, is not part of it. So, so I, I just think there's some misperceptions and, and I think it's become so partisanized and politicized, but, um, but yeah, um, uh, states need the money. They're not bailing out their bankrupt uh, pension systems or whatever, whatever the president was saying about Illinois. Um, they're not, um, yeah, that's not what's happening. Okay, I wanna come back to that, uh, but I'd see Faith which means somebody here with us has a question. And so Faith, uh, please read us, the, uh, read us the question. Yeah, so kind of going off that last point, is that shortfall at the federal level or is it cumulative for the states? Yeah, so that, that study that, that Dr. Bowman referenced is for the Center of Budget and Policy Priorities. And I believe it was uh, cumulative just for the states or is it possibly state yes. and local governments? I can't remember. Uh, but it's yeah, not the states, federal level. Yeah, state and local. Yeah. Yeah, but not the federal level. Right. 
And what is it, Rob, you mentioned employment. Isn't it something like uh, state and local employment is, what, 13% of, of, of employment in this country? Round figures, 13%? Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, something like that, right? And, and, and again, lots of regional variation there, but, but when you're mm -hmm. talking you know, to, to Justin's kickoff question about red state, blue state, right, for a lot of rural areas, the public sector, the school district, the city, uh, university for small university towns, the public sector, public employees are the largest employers, right? Uh, it's, it's, if you look around, if you look at the South and Midwest, it's Walmart and, and, and public sector, right? Those, those are the largest employees or employers. Uh, and so you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but that sounds right. Okay. Hey, Greg. Yeah. There he is. I was getting worried. I think this is the longest I I... time on the podcast <laughs> that we've ever gone without you speaking. Well, we've actually had people who know what they're talking about talking. Uh, so I, <laughs> but I do have, I, I have a couple of questions. One, one is uh, about debt. Uh, and you, you referenced the fact that the federal government can borrow at a lot lower rate. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, or, or Rob, yeah. When states go into the debt market. What kind of problems do they face? What on on you know roughly what kind of interest rate differentials are there between state government debt and federal government debt? We know right now that the federal government can borrow almost unlimited amounts of money at pretty low interest rates because people are looking people with money, the the, the few people who have money are looking for safe places to put it and and treasury bonds we, we think, we hope, are the safest places in the world. So what's the differential between state bargain, bar, uh, borrowing and federal borrowing? Uh, so so that, there's a lot of factors that go into what that differential actually is. Um, for every state government, they've, they've got their own credit rating, and then all the municipalities under them will have their own credit rating uh, that, that sort of vary depending on their risk profiles. But then depending on the purpose of that debt, uh, and what the pledge is to repay that debt, you'll even get variation in, in what the yields will be um, on those bonds. Um, so, so for example, if, the, if the, the state wanted to build a highway and issued a bond to build a highway, that, that might uh, issue at a, at a different rate than if they were going to um, you know, borrow a bunch of money to, to prop up their, um, you know, their, their unemployment uh, insurance program or, or something like that. So, uh, so, so there's, there's a lot of variation even within state for purpose. And then of course, across states, depending on whether you're Texas versus Illinois versus Louisiana versus New York or something like that. Um, but uh, what the municipal market has been a, a, a roller coaster over the last month. I mean, they, <laughs> Uh, initially, initially, it spiked really, really high uh, as or investors, or it spiked really low as investors were, were fleeing out of other markets, and then it spiked right. really Rob, high. As Rob, it, I think our listeners have to know that when we talk about a debt market going up, it means the interest rates gets, gets lower because more people are putting money in, and so you can, you can sell your debt at a cheaper interest rate. So, so it's, you know, when the debt market goes up, it's good for states and locals. When the debt market goes down, it's bad because they have to pay higher interest rates to, 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 right. to, to attract the investment. Absolutely. Yeah, when a, when a, when a, a state or local government sells a bond 
um, to accumulate debt to pay for something, right? They, they sell it at a, a rate, an interest rate, and they're trying to get the lowest uh, interest rate to save themselves money. Uh, and of course, they have to compensate the investors for, for borrowing the money, and the investors are looking for the highest interest rate. Uh, and the, the basic point I was trying to make, though, is there's been a lot of turmoil, right? Investors didn't know what to do. Um, initially, they fled into the muni market, which is a relatively safe market historically, and then they fled out of the muni market as it, as it became clear that revenues for cities were going to, to drop. Um, and they were going to be relatively risky and nobody quite knew how to evaluate that risk because it's unprecedented. Uh, and so, but in general, right, in general, there's, there's still a, a, even at their worst, munis um, are, are issuing bonds and have to pay a much higher rate than the federal government. Um, the federal government can issue at, at this point so cheaply um, that, that it really does make a big difference um, the other thing to consider is, is the uh, potential of, of balanced budget requirements mm -hmm. and other types of restrictions that states put on, on local governments or states are under themselves um, that may restrict the amount of debt that they can issue. Uh, as we know, the federal government uh, has no qualms about just issuing debt and issuing debt and issuing debt and, um, uh, with no end in sight. And thank God for that during the, the Great Recession of, of 07, 09, and right now. And can I ask you about the politics of this? Because I, 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 I truly do not understand it. Uh, I, I, I've stopped listening to the president on these kinds of things. But Mitch McConnell is an extremely smart guy and, a, and, and a, a, a very successful political operator. And I just don't understand why he would start talking about this because I think one of the things that we've learned over the last 30 years, if not in the last three years, and I think the last three years have, have just uh, reemphasized that point, is that nobody cares about debt from a political point of view, right? It used to be that, oh, Democrats didn't care about debt, Republicans uh, did care about debt. Ronald Reagan took us down the road that Republicans don't care about debt, and we just had uh, you know, a massive tax cut, you know, shepherded by Mitch McConnell uh, in, in, the first, uh, in the first two years of, of President Trump's term. Why would Mitch McConnell decide that right now you got to raise the issue of, oh boy, we got to watch how much debt we're getting into? Because, and I, I'll shut up after this, if, if you believe that Mitch McConnell is actually in a competitive race in Kentucky, the last thing that he would want, it seems to me, is to have his Democratic opponent say, Mitch McConnell's the reason that all the teachers and firemen and policemen in Kentucky have gotten fired, because he wouldn't allow the federal government to give the, the to help the state of Kentucky out when it was in need. And do you have a sense of the politics of this? Interesting politics, to be sure. And you're right, Mitch McConnell is a very successful uh, politician. He is from the state of Kentucky, as we know. And the state of Kentucky is one of those states that actually receives more, more money from the federal government than it, uh, than it sends in terms of, its, of, 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 of its, the dollars that are sent by Kentuckians to the feds. Um, so it's a state that oftentimes is a beneficiary of federal, of federal dollars. And you would think Mitch McConnell would want more federal dollars in his state. Now, with regard to the coronavirus, there has been some back and forth with the governor, the current Kentucky governor, who's a 
who's a Democrat. There's been some back and forth on that. Um, I did wonder whether whether Mitch McConnell whether Mitch McConnell um, kind of his political ambitions whether the, perhaps they've plateaued and he's happy um, he's happy where he is and will be perhaps willing to back away from this doesn't really or thinks he's so strong that regardless of what he says uh, he will be he will be reelected. Um, the the politics are fascinating. You were talking about kind of the switch in terms of of you know Ronald Reagan and his perspective and, and other Republicans. Uh, you know, in the old days, it was uh, Republicans who were all about power to the states, and it was Democrats who were no, let's centralize power at the national level and get things done. That's been flipped around in in the current administration as well, uh, as 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 you've seen uh, Democratic governors uh, kind of. Uh, argue for uh, the Tenth Amendment, which we typically hadn't seen in the past. So the politics have been turned upside down a little uh, on this. There's, there's been some question about Mitch McConnell and his, the, the, the sincerity of the, of, the, of the issue on bankruptcy and, and those kinds of things, and whether he was just throwing that out as uh, perhaps a, 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 a just kind of a, a discussion point, if you will, but isn't, isn't serious about that. He um, just wants to tweet Chuck Schumer one more time and Nancy Pelosi yet again. So, so, so I'm not sure, but, but politically it doesn't, make, uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of uh, where Kentucky is and, uh, and they're and, and, and their ben being beneficiary of federal dollars. I so, see Faith again. Oh, go ahead, Rob. I, I was just, so, so Dr. Bowman's the, the, the expert on, on the, political side of this for sure. Um, but I will just say a couple couple things that I've seen um, sort of question um, how much of these types of policy positions that come out of, of Senator McConnell are, are really Kentucky priorities or are donor priorities, right? Um, Mitch McConnell gets a lot of money from outside of Kentucky. I, I think all of his top 10 donors are outside of Kentucky. Um, he represents a a more significant portion of of that um, of the Republican Party than that's that's not Kentucky based, right? So not all of his policy priorities and political statements um, may be reflections of of Kentucky and and what's in its best mm -hmm. interest from a traditional sort of political uh, posturing type standpoint. Um, the other thing that I've seen suggested, and again, I don't know, I'm not an expert in this, so I, I don't know how much of this is true, but uh, we have to remember bankruptcy is a legal process. Um, bankruptcy is a process where, uh, where federal courts get to decide what the priorities are and who gets paid and how much they get paid. Um, and if you have faith that the courts are more aligned with your, your interest and in how you think states should be spending money or not raising taxes, um, then you may be more happy allowing the federal courts to decide those types of issues rather than the governors of those states. Um, and so, so it becomes a, a sort of different type of power dynamic and, and, uh, and you, you add the court and their judgment making process into what would typically be uh, a, a sovereign state uh, process. Thanks, that's, that's great. Faith, I see you out there. Um, go ahead. So going back to some previous points that were made, do you guys anticipate the bond ratings will get some forgiveness in the coming months if local governments tap into their rainy day funds? 
So we first have to assume that local governments have any rainy day funds to tap into. Um, and that's not always a, a great assumption. Um, but you have to remember bond rating agencies are there to give their opinion on default risk. And it's not for the benefit of, of local governments, it's for the benefit of the investors that are buying those bonds. So they're not in the business of, of sort of um, being sympathetic or cutting anybody slack, right? If, if, they, if they think that there's more, uh, that their investors are going to, to receive more value in a harsh um, sort of pessimistic view of states and their ability to tap into rainy day funds, then the, that, that will be reflected in the, the bond ratings themselves. Um, right? they, they, serve, they serve the investors, not, not the states or local governments. Ann, any of this you wanna jump in on? No, I think Rob's got it. Great. I see Faith again. Faith, is there another question? There is another question. And then going back to the uh, Mitch McConnell discussion, could it be that McConnell is concerned about a Tea Party style revolt if he doesn't appear to be ultra white wing in terms of monetary policy? That's a good question. Uh, certainly. Um, uh, we've, we've seen some interesting protests at state capitals over the last couple of weeks. Uh, those are not, as everything I've read suggests, those are not spot spontaneous um, uh, gatherings of folks that they're very well orchestrated uh, from um, uh, folks who are interested in uh, in 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 these in the, the primary protests have been against uh, governors, Democratic governors, typically who um, who have who've adopted uh, stay-at-home orders and shutdowns that are that are uh, in the phrase that's been used or the word that's been used or they're too draconian. Uh, those 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 kind of anti uh, let's you know let's get the let's get the economy back on its feet again get us back to work those protests but there's also been a few protests in in blue states on uh, against governors um, uh, not doing enough by by um, a lot of local officials and and some individuals as well so so in response to the kind of the question there could be some concern uh, on McConnell's part about not being far right enough. Uh, on on some of these questions. Yeah, I think that's certainly true, um, especially considering sort of what it, the, the point I made earlier about the donor base and sort of who, who he's representing there. Um, but I, I do want to point out something. Uh, I believe the question uh, specifically sort of put it in terms of, of monetary policy, um, when a lot of what we've been talking about so far has been fiscal policy, has been direct support, direct spending from the federal governments um, to businesses, to individuals, and, and to potentially state and local governments, which the CARES Act does provide some money to all of those. But, but some in, really interesting things are happening on the monetary side. The Federal Reserve has established uh, what they call the Municipal Liquidity Facility. And I don't want to get sort of too wonkish, depending on sort of where, where people want to talk about. But get, is as a, wonky, get as wonky as you want to be. <laughs> so, so the Municipal Liquidity Facility is a really interesting monetary tool. It's, it's something new. It's something that has never been done before. It means the federal government is directly buying short-term government bonds. It was, it was two years. And then yesterday, they, they changed it up to three years. Um, and so uh, I believe it's counties with populations of at least 500,000 residents and cities with populations of at least 250,000 residents um, are eligible for this program where their, their short-term bonds up to three years um, can be purchased uh, by the Federal Reserve directly, uh, which is, which is a, a new market mechanism that, that we're not seeing. It's, it's, it's meant to provide short-term cash flow relief for local governments, which, which Rob, they need. Rob, 
Yeah. Rob, since there's no bidding process on that, what, I mean, how are interest rates set? Um, that I am less sure on. I do know they have to be investment grade. There is a cutoff um, what, between sort of what, what the ratings are. Um, I don't know exactly how the, the, the bid mechanism is going to work in terms of determining price. Um, but uh, but I, I do sort of want to stress that, that this is not for all types of, of local government borrowing. It is, it is relatively short term. It is for cash flow purposes um, because of payment delays, things like you know, cities not requiring their property taxes to be paid on a specified date and, and allowing some flexibility on that. They may get some, some relief on, on short term borrowing uh, to fill those gaps. These are sort of tax anticipation notes or revenue anticipation notes um, for, for cash flow management type issues. Um, but anyway, so, so there are some things happening on the monetary side uh, through the Federal Reserve in addition to, to the fiscal policy side. Rob, is there a, a Federal Reserve facility for state bonds to be bought? Uh, so the municipal facility included states um, on, the, on the onset. Yeah, so when we consider the municipal market, it is state and local governments um, are, are all in the same market. Yeah. Okay, so that's this is one tool that sounds like uh, it's providing some relief for states and responding to COVID-19. Um, we've talked about the dangers of the federal government not uh, helping states out. What, what types of things can the federal government do and do we think or do you think they should be doing to give opportunities to, to states to help protect basic core, uh, state and local governments to help protect basic core services? What what should we be hoping to see, or what would be I, you know, nice to see? In terms of in terms of policies adopted, or yeah, to assist state and local governments if they're going to have this five hundred something billion dollar shortfall. What types of things can the federal government do that we think maybe they should be doing to help protect states to provide those basic services? Well, I guess I would think about it in terms of, you know, picking up a greater share of, uh, of some of jointly, uh, jointly operated programs like, um, like Medicaid, for example. Um, some, of the, some of the things that states spend a lot of money on, uh, if the federal government could increase their participation in that, their financial participation in that, that would certainly help, uh, that would certainly help state governments. I mean, the, the, the point I, I really wanted to kind of emphasize was um, this, this, you know, again, I think we have, we have leadership at the national level, especially in the executive branch, um, that is uh, not as informed about, about the federal system and how federalism functions and how it can be, be effective. But the, there's a real question about, about the variation of what states are doing and, and kind of, uh, I've heard it, people refer to it as kind of a patchwork of policies. And, you know, that strikes me as potentially a good thing. Um, that you that you can have states innovating or or trying trying new ideas and et cetera et cetera and you can see states moving more quickly than other states and so you get you get a lot of variation and I think that is a that is a good thing I mean there's certainly a role for the federal government we you know we've certainly seen this in terms of um, uh, one of the things that, that Andrew Cuomo raised when it, when he was talking in one of his many uh, press conferences. Um, about the fact that states were competing for ventilators and just how ridiculous that was. And why wasn't there some sort of uh, centralized uh, a mechanism for doing, for, for distributing these, uh, uh, this, this kind of equipment and, and, uh, and, uh, and PPEs and all these other things that, that, uh, that states need. And, um, and that's the, the, the comment that uh, the president made about, well, the federal government's not a shipping clerk. 
Well, you know, no, but uh, the federal government can play a, a role, a greater role in providing some guidance. Um, you know, certainly uh, there's, some, there's some, some good science that can be done at the national level. That would help state and local governments a lot. Uh, one of the interesting experiments I was hearing about was one that involves um, uh, the Mayo Clinic, the University of Minnesota, and the state of Minnesota in, in, in developing some, um, uh, some efforts at, at vaccine and, and, and those kinds of things. So the federal government can certainly stimulate uh, innovation uh, at the state level. I would, I would think that would be um, uh, an effective use of federal government resources. Great. Rob? Yeah, I think sort of the, the non sort of fiscal answer, the not, the, you know, the answer that, that doesn't just mean throw more money um, at state governments, state and local governments, uh, would, would be exactly what, what Dr. Bowman highlighted, which is leadership, right? Um, and uh, having a unified message that's based in science that allows governors um, and other states the sort of political um, uh, protection in some cases or uh, ability to collaborate um, that that they're currently not not receiving right mm -hmm. um, but I think the the real answer if you would ask a governor or a, a city manager um, is is they need direct federal support they they need some way to close the gap between how much revenue that they projected to, to generate and how much revenue they've actually generated um, since since uh, this has started. Um, at the federal level, there are some programs that the federal government is directly involved in that they could directly prop up, such as unemployment insurance. Um, states are seeing, you know, just record-breaking amounts of unemployment insurance claims. Uh, those systems are strapped for cash. They will start to run out of money. Um, and the federal government can, through the, you know, they have through the CARES Act, but can continue to provide direct support for unemployment insurance programs um, as, as sort of a, a baseline, right? And then healthcare provision also um, a, a, a sort of necessity. Um, but, but beyond that, I think one of the really concerning things that we're seeing is, is political maneuvering where, um, where the administration uh, provides sort of disincentives for staying uh, for shelter in place orders, trying to encourage states to open back up to jumpstart the economy, even when it's not the best health policy um, uh, strategy, because he's holding money over their heads, right? He's saying, you know, we're not really going to, you know, we're not interested in bailing states out unless they're interested in reopening their economies and getting things going. Um, and that's, that's sort of political maneuvering where you know, you, you, you hold the carrot out in front of them and say, if you reopen your states, then maybe there's some more money at the end of the uh, line for you, right? That, that's really, that's a really pervasive strategy that, that just is not going to, to be in, in the best interest long-term um, from, from a health standpoint or from an economic standpoint. Uh, and so, so I, think, I think starting with that would be a good, good place. Yeah, and I, I guess I'd, let me also add the, the one of the most recent thing that's occurred is that the U.S. Attorney General Barr uh, directing all the U.S. attorneys to be on the lookout for states um, that are um, uh, violating individual rights, which is certainly a good thing. States should not be in vi violating people's constitutional rights. Um, but but the, basically, it was another one of these warning shots that was 
uh, that, that states could face challenges in federal court if they don't move quickly enough to relax regulations and restrictions that they've adopted. And, you know, that's not leadership and support and guidance. That's, uh, that's uh, one might say it's uh, sort of uh, uh, interesting bullying. Yeah, it doesn't seem like what you're looking for for relationship building and trust in a kind of a federalist system to mm -hmm. help coordinate efforts to the most effective way possible. It doesn't look like that. Um, Faith, I see your face. How are you over there? Uh, I guess we have another uh, question, so let's hear it. This is a very fun question because it pertains to something that I care a lot about. So the food value chain presents high challenges in this health and economic crisis. Are there initiatives to fix some of the issues the farmers and food intermediaries are facing? Should this come from the federal or state level? Good question. Yeah, that's a good question. And um, it does make me think of the food, energy, water nexus, but I'll, I'll let that go for a moment. Um, but the, um, uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Agriculture is an important part of many states. It's important to all of us, of course, but it's an important part of many states' economies. Um, there is uh, clearly, in a lot of instances, interstate, um, um, interstate effects as well. You know, that strikes me as something that, uh, that, that the federal government could handle uh, much more effectively than individual states uh, when we're talking about agriculture and, and the food supply and, and the logistics of, of food transportation and getting goods to markets, et cetera, et cetera. So I would, I would argue I'm totally happy for the federal government to play a, a leadership role uh, in that. Uh, yeah, I think I would, I would say, right, there are roles for both the federal government and state governments to play. Um, when, it, when you're talking about, about agricultural subsidies, right, you're talking about, there's, there's a long history of the federal government and agricultural subsidies, and they are well equipped and have the infrastructure to push money out to farmers, um, and, and they can certainly uh, do that uh, in, in probably a, a faster and uh, more well-equipped way than, than states can. Um, when you're talking about food safety um, and the, the food chain as it pertains to getting sort of safe food to all the people that are, are you know, the, through the rest of the economy, um, a lot of that's going to come down to, to state and local health inspectors. There are federal health inspectors, but, but state and locals and, and the policies, uh, uh, the shelter-in-place policies, the, the guidance for reopening the economy, right? The testing facilities. We haven't talked a lot about, about testing and paying for testing, but uh, you would certainly want to prioritize people on the food chain to be able to get tests um, before they spread that by, you know, by infecting anything along along that food chain, um, and so I think prioritizing testing for for uh, those different um, steps along the food chain is certainly one strategy. Um, but that's going to come again. That's we're, we're we're such a fragmented healthcare system that there has to be there has to be some sort of signal leadership signal from the top, and that has to be implemented by the states. Um, and uh, in a lot of cases. It, it's not, it can't be a mandate. In some cases it can, um, but, but this requires cooperation, it requires coordination, it requires people being able to talk to each other and not every issue be a political issue, uh, which, which is unfortunately uh, not the reality that we're currently living in. Yeah, and I, I would also add that, uh, you know, we've seen some states behaving very cooperatively with one another. There's that, um, uh, the Northeastern uh, group of states that started out with New York and 
Connecticut and, and New Jersey, and we saw it in the West Coast as well with California, Washington, and, and Oregon. Now there's a Midwest version, and other states have joined the Northeastern Regional. So there, so there are some things that, and, and we should acknowledge, I think, that there are some things that can be done on a regional basis that can be reasonably effective as well, rather than you know, states acting individually or the federal government playing a role. There are, there are mechanisms for, for regional cooperation across states, even Absolutely. if they meet. Absolutely, and, and regional cooperation across local governments and between mm -hmm. state and local governments, right? There's a lot of great things, a lot of, of really talented um, and, and hardworking individuals at, at the state level and local level um, that are sure. coordinating in, in various response efforts. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the, we, we shouldn't be all doom and gloom. There is a lot of good that's happening right now. Um, but when the question is, what more can we be doing, right, the answer automatically goes to all the things that we're not doing particularly well. Ann and Rob, let's go back to, to this idea that, there, that we're going to have some kind of federal <clears throat> uh, 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 pot of money for state and local. How would that be distributed? Would it be distributed per capita? I mean, how, how would the federal government decide which states and which localities get what percentage of that money? Okay, Greg. So what I've seen sketched out <laughs> is, uh, is an octagon where you put all the governors in the middle um, and then they each get a chair, right? And then last man standing gets the pot of money. That's what could, I've seen. Could be the last woman standing. Or woman standing, of course. Of I think, course. Sorry, I, I think sorry. the governor of Rhode Island would have a chance. She seems pretty tough. Yeah, anybody who'd uh, try to keep out you know, uh, cars with New York license plates <laughs> out of Rhode Island, which, what does it take, 20 minutes to drive through it? Um, is yeah, she's she's pretty feisty. <laughs> yeah, it's an uh, interesting question about about distribution, though. And I guess you know, it, per capita certainly makes some sense. I mean, uh, the, the 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 level of whatever the mechanism is, kind of a maybe a severity test. How badly? You know, how 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 significant is the problem in your state? That kind of a thing. So there are different mechanisms that can be used. Congress is quite adept at. Uh, building in these distribution mechanisms and in, in, in everything it enacts. Um, it, it can involve politics, of course. Um, well, it probably will involve politics. Um, but but there, there's certain ways you could, you could design these mechanisms. So, you know, per capita certainly comes to mind. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about number of cases and sometimes there's, it, it, there's less about the rate of infection or the rate of hospitalization. It's, it's raw numbers. So, so we do need to pay some attention to uh, the size of, say, a California or Texas vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Rhode Island. Um, yeah, and if you're going to base it on 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 cases, then it, you get into the whole issue of testing. Sure. Yeah. Which, is, which has been very. I mean, it, we, we haven't had enough testing anywhere, but it's been very different from state to state. Yeah, there was an interesting well, proposal by I'm a Nobel winner of some kind who uh, was talking about everybody should be tested. That's what, where the money should go, is to testing. Test everybody periodically um, and just get this, you know, get this over with. Oh, that's Paul, Paul Romer, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah. 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 yeah, everybody would be tested once every two weeks. Mm -hmm. So how, I, many tests, how, many, how many hundreds of millions of tests would you need just to start that? Yeah, quite a few. Um, we've, yeah, we've been a little slow on the testing in a lot of places. Texas would be one of those places. Um, Rob? 
Um, I, I just wanted to, so to, to answer Greg's question, um, there, uh, the rollout of a lot of the federal stimulus does not come um, with, with fine level details. <laughs> uh, they, yeah. they, tend, they tend to talk in sort of big picture and then how the money gets rolled out has been a real problem. Um, uh, and, and so we, we, the short is we, we don't always know, um, but there has been some money. So the CARES Act included, I think it was 150 billion that was uh, direct support for state and local governments. Uh, and I believe there was a baseline of one or one and a quarter billion that was gonna go to each state as, as sort of a baseline. And then you could have more on top of that based on various factors. Um, and that's, that's the sort of the, the, the most general pot of money. But then there's lots of other pots of money for health-related expenses that go directly to uh, public health agencies at the state level or, or hospitals directly. Um, and so it's kind of hard to say, you know, how much is going in total, well, we could say, and we take some time to go through the numbers, how much total is going to each state um, because, because of the way it's divided up, right? So when you put more money into SNAP, when you put more, more money into to unemployment insurance, when you put more money into to hospitals and, and community health centers, um, different states are gonna receive different amounts of that based on how many people and, and, and the, the intensity of the problem, right? like when you go to, to to funding testing kits and things like that. But when we're talking about the, the, you know, less strings attached, broadest sense of, you know, here's a billion dollars to fill in some of your revenue. Um, there's a, there's seems to be some appetite for a, a base level that goes to all states and then some gradual sort of difference uh, on top of that. Thanks Rob. Faith, I see you. Is that because we have another question? All right, let's hear one final question. All right, so this is kind of similar to the last one, but considering that the small and medium enterprises are hurt in the crisis and that they create employment, what is the level of priority given to these entities and should these initiatives come from the federal or state level? Uh, so the problem is in the definition of small and medium enterprises um, and who gets to qualify as a small or medium enterprises? Uh, we saw that we saw that in the in the first round of these uh, quote unquote small business loans that went to Harvard and Shake Shack and uh, a lot of yeah. places that you wouldn't qualify you wouldn't normally think of as a small business. Right. Yeah. So so the you know Ruth Chris was getting the small business loans and you know there was a lot of headlines like that. Um, in terms of policy priorities, the way it was stated is I think it was. Uh, of the 2.3 trillion in the first round of the CARES Act, uh, 600 billion went to quote unquote small businesses with another 500 billion going to quote unquote large businesses with special carve outs, right? The airline industry got its own you know, pot of money and, and things like that. Um, and so the small businesses were supposed to get, you know, as much if not more than, than the large businesses, but the terms are really fuzzy uh, depending on how the you know, the franchising arrangements and ownership structures for some of these corporations work. You can qualify when you, you know, a, a you know, lay person look at that and go, no, that's a chain restaurant. They don't qualify, but each independent um, operator owns its own facility and therefore they are a small business under these guidelines. So, so it's a really kind of, it's a really tricky question, um, uh, but an important one, right? Uh, we want to help uh, support uh, the, the small and medium sized businesses. I think you're exactly right. But, but implementing that, right? So, you know, this is my high level for all my clients, all policies implementation. Uh, and so, so how you implement a policy like that 
is is the real important nuts and bolts and and we we failed the first time around we we failed the first time around uh, and it's going to take some refinement in in subsequent stimulus packages yeah it was kind of failed at every front across unemployment insurance across small business association i mean we weren't able to affect i mean granted it is as the word is unprecedented demand in these uh, institutions. And I think they deserve some leeway for that. But uh, yeah, handling the rollout has for anyone that I've talked to that's trying to get access to any of these direct benefits has been, uh, has been tough, I think. Right. Um, okay. So we're ending, we're closing here uh, on the hour mark. Um, so in respect of everyone's time, I just wanted to say uh, thanks to uh, Professor Ann Bowman and Professor Robert Greer for closing down season two and the close quarters uh, series where we've been talking about COVID-19 pretty nonstop now for um, six weeks. And this was an important piece that we had not gotten to. So thank you to the both of you for, uh, for joining and for kind of doing it last minute. So thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Happy to do it. Sure. Greg, um, I guess we wind down season two now, believe it or not, we've, uh, We've made it through two seasons. Uh, we hope to and intend to be back in the fall uh, with another round of podcasts. We also intend to have some uh, limited content for you over the summer. But sadly, we will, uh, Greg, while you'll be here and I'll be here in the fall, somebody that's part of our production team will not be here. Uh, we Who, will be whoever, whoever do you mean, Justin? I think we will be missing Faith. Faith, we... Uh, Appreciate all your work this year. Uh, um, just so listeners know, this is the first kind of time we try to do this uh, this series. First time we've tried to do Zoom and edit, video editing. Faith uh, adapted and made all this work and handled any issues we had with the Zoom transition. Um, has helped to handle our uh, social media accounts, helped interact with the guests, helped keep us in line. Um, and, well, I don't. Uh, hold, on, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> She didn't help keep us in <laughs> Yeah, if so, she did, she did fail in that endeavor. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, uh, we appreciate all your help. Our, uh, just so the audience knows, we doubled the amount of uh, kind of audience we have this year over last year's numbers. Um, so that has been a large work uh, thanks to, uh, to Faith's efforts. So Faith, we, uh, we will miss you being our uh, full-time um, podcast assistant. Thank you, Faith. Best of okay. luck. We will miss you. Greg, you're not getting rid of me that easily. I'll be back for the summer and for the fall. And Rob, uh, we'll have you back again next season, too, because okay. it's always a pleasure to get to talk with the two of you. And local and, governments uh, aren't audience, going anywhere. And local <laughs> governments aren't going anywhere. No matter what happens, local governments will continue to uh, – to exist. I just got my property tax valuation. I know that the local <laughs> government is not going anywhere. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone. Uh, thanks again. And we uh, will keep you updated on when we'll start back up. Take care, everyone. All right. Thanks, All right, Justin. Thanks. thanks, Greg. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for hanging out with us.